Are men born sinners? Our answer to this question will affect our attitude towards sin and will ultimately affect our conduct as well. The Christian's views on sin cannot help but affect his conduct. If the Christian believes he is born with a sinful nature and sins unavoidably because of that nature, he is not likely to view that his sins as a serious crimes they really are. If he believes he has a nature that makes holiness impossible, he is not likely to be concerned about sinning against God. If he believes that God is his creator and that he has been created with a sinful nature, this must affect his attitude toward God and the justice of God's dealings with man. Are men born sinners? Our answer to this question is of supreme importance, for how we answer it will have a direct bearing on our attitude toward sin, toward God, and toward holy Christian living. Now for our host, Bill Petrie. There are those who object to the position that a sinful nature is not inherited by all mankind and say, if we do not inherit a sinful nature, there certainly would be some who have chosen not to be sinners. But say, does this sinful nature force us to sin or does it incline us towards sin? If the former, how can sinners be blameworthy for being sinners? and the choice of sin be punishable. If the latter, the objection can equally fall on itself. For if our nature does not force us to sin, but rather inclines us to sin, then there might have been some who have chosen not to sin, despite the inclination of their nature. Furthermore, a nature that inclines towards sin is not sin itself and should not, for that reason, be properly called a sinful nature, as that confuses temptation with sin. The position maintained by this podcast is that, like Adam and Eve, we have a nature that is susceptible to temptation. By suggesting to our minds to gratify our natural desires in unnatural and unlawful ways. However, if the position of a universal inclination towards sin is sufficient to answer for the universality of sin, then the position of our natural susceptibility to temptation would be equally sufficient to answer for the universality of sin. If the universality of sin can be accounted for by men, freely obeying a natural inclination towards sin, then the same fact by the universality of sin can be accounted for by men freely obeying a natural susceptibility of temptation to sin. The Apostle Paul said, In my temptation which is in my flesh, in Galatians 4.14, here Paul speaks of his flesh being an occasion for temptation. We cannot say that our flesh or body is sinful or that we have a sinful nature just because our flesh or nature is susceptible to temptation and capable of becoming perverted and corrupted. Temptation is not sin.
it is not sinful to be tempted, or else Jesus Christ was sinner. Jesus was tempted like as we are, yet without sin, according to Hebrews 4.15. Therefore, temptation is not sin. If Jesus was tempted like as we are, and we are tempted by the adversary through the, desire, through the desires of our nature, then Jesus too was tempted by the adversary through the desires of his nature. And if Jesus was yet without sin, despite his temptations through the desires of his nature, then the desires of our nature are not in and of themselves sin. Temptation is the suggestion of the adversary to gratify a natural desire in an unnatural and unlawful way. And neither the temptation nor the natural desire itself is sin. Sin consists in the consent of the will to the temptation or the choice of the will to obey the suggestion of Satan or his minions. The idea of our flesh being sinful overlooks the most basic or fundamental definition of sin. The scriptures are explicit that sin is all unrighteousness in 1 John 5.17. And to know good and not do it is sin in James 4.17. Moral law never states what type of body or nature we should or shouldn't have been born with. Therefore, our choices can be sinful, but our body or nature cannot be. And as the law says, nothing regarding what types of desires our body should or shouldn't be born with, the desires of our body that we are born with cannot be sin because their existence is not in violation of any of God's commands. Our flesh is nothing more than dirt from the earth that God created according to Genesis 2.7 and Genesis 3.19. Clearly then, our flesh cannot be sinful. You cannot have sinful dirt. Dirt does not have any moral qualities in and of itself. Dirt is physical, not moral. Dirt does not violate any commandment at all. There is no commandment that says, Thou shalt not be made out of dirt. Such a command is supposed to be a requirement as to what type of choice you should and should not make. What you are made from is not a choice that you are free to make. Therefore, you cannot be properly commanded to be made from a certain substance, and consequently, your substance cannot be sinful because it is not a violation of any moral obligation. Our moral character cannot consist in our composition or in our body, because we do not choose what type of body we have. Even if there was such a commandment that forbade 
being composed of a certain type of substance, our violation of that command would not be our fault, but God's fault, since we did not create ourselves, but it was God who made the dirt and then made us out of the dirt. So if our flesh is sinful, this sinfulness is not our fault, but God's fault, because God is the one who creates us with flesh. The Bible says, Thine hands have made me, and fashioned me together round about. Thou hast made me as the clay. Thou hast clothed me with skin and flesh, and hast fenced me with bones and sinews. In Job chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. God is the creator of our composition and constitution. And since God is holy and does not want us to be sinful, he certainly would not create us out of some type of sinful substance. Otherwise, Job would be blaming God for his sinful condition by saying to him, Thine hands have made me and fashioned me together sinfully. Thou hast made me of sin. Thou hast clothed me with sinful substance and fenced me with an evil constitution. Job would be saying that men are sinful, not for choosing to break God's laws and commands, but for being created by God himself. To even apply the word sinful to an involuntary substance of our composition or to our overall constitution itself is to assign a moral quality to an involuntary state, which is an intrinsic contradiction. Moral qualities can only be predicated upon voluntary states of being, or else such qualities cannot truly be considered moral. Moral qualities are not inherent in matter itself. So, it is impossible to be created out of sinful substance. Some modern translations of the Bible, like the New International Version, or the NIV for short, will translate the word flesh and other such words into the phrase sinful nature, thus applying moral qualities to our composition and constitution, which are involuntary on our part because they are not caused by our own will. But to translate the word flesh into sinful nature is a completely arbitrary translation, since the actual Greek word for sin and the Greek word for nature is not used in the original text at all in these passages. And out of all the possible meanings of the Greek word sarx, which is used, the phrase sinful nature is not one of them. The Greek word for sinful is hamartalos, and the Greek word for nature is phusis. If there is such a thing as a sinful nature, you would expect to find 
Artolus Fusus in the Greek scriptures. But these two Greek words are not found anywhere in the entire Bible next to each other or side by side to make the term sinful nature. In fact, these two words cannot even be found in the same sentence anywhere in the Bible. The single word sarx, which means flesh, is what is mistakenly and inconsistently translated as sinful nature by the Niv. But this is really an interpretation and not a translation. The term sinful nature is not a term found anywhere in the Greek New Testament at all. And therefore, we ought not to find it in our English translations. The Bible versions which translate words into sinful nature are practicing eisegesis, not exegesis, which means that they are trying to fit their theology into the Bible rather than deriving their theology from the Bible. The fact that their translation is arbitrary is shown by the fact that they translate sarks or flesh into sinful nature all throughout their Bible version. But when the very same word in the Greek is used to describe Jesus Christ, they do not translate it as sinful nature. This is their happy inconsistency. If they were consistent in their interpretation, the Bible would state, and every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in his sinful flesh is not of God. And for many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the sinful nature. Or God was manifest in the sinful nature. These verses are perfect reasons why the word flesh does not mean sinful nature and should never be translated as such, nor understood as such. Flesh is not sinful in and of itself, but it can be used sinfully. It is sinful to selfishly live after the flesh, according to Romans 8.13, or to be living to satisfy our flesh in Romans 8, 7. But it is not sinful to simply have flesh. God does not forbid that we have flesh, but he does forbid selfishness. That is why it is sinful to live after the flesh, but not sinful to simply have flesh. We know with absolute certainty that it is not sinful to have flesh because Jesus Christ was sinless, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21. And yet, we know that Jesus had flesh. Jesus said, For spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have, in Luke 24.39. And the word was made flesh, according to John 1, 14. 
forasmuch then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Therefore, in all things, it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, states Hebrews 2.14 and 17. God was manifest in the flesh in 1 Timothy 3.16. In the body of his flesh, Paul states in Colossians 1.22, for as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, according to Peter in 1 Peter 4.1. John writes, in every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world, in 1 John 4, 3. And for many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver in an Antichrist. 2 John 1, verse 7 states, Notice that these verses not only say that Jesus Christ had flesh, but he, that he took part of the same, and in all things Christ was made like unto his brethren. Since Jesus Christ was sinless, and yet he had the same type of human flesh that we have, we can logically conclude from this that our human flesh is not intrinsically evil or inherently sinful, and our flesh is not a sinful nature. I used to believe the virgin birth was necessary in order for Jesus to avoid the inheritance of a sinful nature. However, the scriptures nowhere state that Jesus was born of a virgin to, in, to avoid the inheritance of some type of sinful substance. Rather, the Bible says that he was born of a virgin as a sign unto Israel and because his father was God. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Luke confirms this in Luke 1.35. And the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Though Jesus was born of a virgin, and his father was God, Jesus did not have a different type of flesh from the rest of us. He had the same type of flesh that we have. Jesus was not made physically perfect 
until the third day when he was raised with a glorified body, according to Luke 13.32 and Hebrews 5.9. If Jesus was born with a glorified flesh, or if he did not take upon himself a flesh like we have, which was subjected to death, he could not have tasted death for every man, and therefore could not have made atonement at all. It was necessary for Jesus Christ to be made with the same type of physical body that we have, so that he could be capable of physical death. The Bible says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him. They had the power of death, that is, the devil. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. And we read that in Hebrews 2, 9, 14, and 16 through 17. Now consider the syllogisms which can be drawn from this text. There's a major premise. Jesus was made in all things like us. There's a minor premise. Jesus was not made sinful. The conclusion we can make. Therefore, we are not made sinful. There's a major premise. Jesus was made a partaker of flesh and blood. Minor premise. Jesus was entirely sinless. Conclusion. Flesh and blood are not sinful. Major premise, Jesus had the same type of flesh that we have. Minor premise, Jesus was not sinful in any way. Conclusion, our flesh is not sinful. If Jesus was made in all things like we are made, we can conclude that he took part of the same type of physical substance that we took part of. In this way, Jesus was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, according to Romans 8.3, which does not mean that physical flesh is sinful, but it does mean that Jesus was made in the likeness of men, according to Philippians 2.7, and in fashion as a man, in Philippians 2.8, the word flesh is sometimes used synonymously with men, for instance, in Galatians 6.12, Matthew 16.17, and Galatians 1.16. So to say Jesus was made in the likeness of sinful flesh 
is the same as saying that Jesus was made in the likeness or similitude of sinful men. Jesus was made in the likeness or form of men, in that he had the same human nature and flesh that we all have. But, but and this is a very big but, but unlike all other men, he never chose to sin. The Bible tells us that Jesus was morally perfect in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Even before he had a glorified, resurrected, or perfect body, he was morally perfect even while he had a physically imperfect body which was subjected to death. That is because sin is not a substance or state of the body, but it is a choice of the will. We are told that Elijah was a righteous man even while he was a man subject to like passions as we are. This shows that moral character does not consist in the passions and appetites of your body or constitution, but in the state of your will. When the Bible speaks of a vile body being changed into a glorious body in Philippians 3.21, this does not mean that our body goes from a sinful state to a sinless state. Rather, the Bible speaks of the corruptible being changed to become incorruptible, which is when the mortal puts on immortality in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 52 and 53. Our body, which is physically corrupt, dishonorable, weak, and natural, will be raised incorruptible, honorable, powerful, and supernatural in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 and 44. We know that these terms like corruptible does not refer to a sinful state, but a mortal or temporal state because of how Paul uses the word in the same epistle to describe earthly crowns in 1 Corinthians 9.25. Paul said our outward man perish in 2 Corinthians 4.16. Our time in this tabernacle is temporary in 2 Corinthians 5.1 and 5.4. Our body is vile in that it is corruptible or subjected to disease, decay, and death. The word vile itself means of low estate and is translated as low and humiliation in other verses like Luke one forty eight and James one ten and Acts. 8.33 to give three examples. Our bodies are not therefore vile in the sense of being sinful, 
themselves. The command to put away evil implies that evil is a choice of our will and not a substance of our nature. The command to cease to do evil in Isaiah 116, for example, and to sin no more in John 8.11, implies that all sin is volitional. It implies that sin is not some involuntary substance dwelling inside of you, which you cannot get rid of. And therefore, you do not need a new body or a new substance to be free from sin. The idea that you cannot live free from sin until you get a glorified body presupposes a Gnostic moral philosophy. Scripturally, you can have a pure and perfect heart or be morally perfect in this life even while you have a fallen and corrupted body or are physically imperfect. This is evident since the Bible described certain men as being perfect in heart in this life, even while existed in their corrupted, depraved, or fallen flesh. Just read these verses. Jot them down, if you will. 1 Kings 6, 61. 1 Kings 11, 4. 1 Kings 15, 3. 1 Kings 15, 14. 1 Kings 20, verse 3. 1 Chronicles 12, verse 38. 1 Chronicles 28, 9. 1 Chronicles 29, 9. 1 Chronicles 29, 19. 1 Chronicles 15, 17. 1 Chronicles 16, 9. 1 Chronicles 19, 9. 1 Chronicles 25, 2, Job chapter 1, verse 1, Job chapter 1, verse 8, Psalms chapter 102, verse 1, Isaiah 38, verse 3, are just a few passages that record individuals like this. And I didn't even get to the New Testament yet. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth? a perfect and upright man, one that fears God and eschews evil, Job 1.8 records. Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee, how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. Isaiah 38.3 states, Notice that these are examples of holy men that existed after Adam and before Jesus Christ. Clearly, you can be morally perfect or completely obedient to God in heart, even while you are physically depraved. Your heart can be right with God in obeying all the moral knowledge that you have even while your body does not sustain perfect health. Though your flesh is corrupt, 
your moral character does not have to be. Does not God say of David that he is a man like unto mine own heart? Your will can't obey all the moral knowledge of your body, thus creating a perfect moral character even while your body or flesh is fallen and depraved, or even while you are physically imperfect. The distinction between the moral and the physical must be kept in our minds. We must differentiate between moral depravity, Romans 3.23, and physical depravity, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 and 23. And we must distinguish between moral perfection, Philippians 3.15, and physical perfection, 1 Corinthians 15.42, and Philippians 3.11 and 12. For example, Paul said in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed, in 1 Corinthians 15.52. Paul was not saying that our moral character would be changed, but that our body would be changed. He said, for this corruptible must put on in corruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall I put on incorruption, and this mortal shall I put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. It's First Corinthians 15, verses 53 and 54. Paul was not talking about being made morally perfect, but physically perfect. He was not saying that we become morally incorruptible as if we lose our free will in heaven, but that we become physically incorruptible since we lose our fallen body in the resurrection. The bodies that we have, which are subjected to death, will be taken away, so that death is swallowed up and gone. It is mortality that is taken away, not moral choice. Another example of the distinction between physical and moral perfection is when Paul said, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, Philippians 3.12. What Paul said he had not yet attained perfection, he was talking about being free from physical corruption and attaining physical perfection. This is obvious, since he said in the verse right before, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, in Philippians 3.11. The context of verse 11 gives clarity to the meaning of verse 12. Paul was saying 
that he had not yet attained physical perfection, but because he had not yet attained a glorified body, as that occurs in resurrection. Paul was not saying that he was sinful and he had not yet been made free from sin, as Calvinists teach, since Paul already said that Christians have been made free from sin in Romans 6.18 and Romans 6.22, and that he had a conscience void of offense in Acts 24.16. You can also read Acts 23.1 and 2 Timothy 1.3. Paul was certainly not saying that moral perfection is unattainable in this life, as many misunderstand him to be saying. Since only two two verses down, he said, let us therefore as many as be perfect, be thus minded, in Philippians 3.15. Clearly, Paul was writing about two different types of perfection. One type of perfection, Paul said he had attained. And one type of perfection, which he said he had not yet attained. Paul was making a clear distinction between physical physical perfection and moral perfection, and stated that the former is only attainable in the next life, while the latter is attainable in this life. Moral perfection is attainable in this life while we are still in our flesh, since our flesh is not sinful in and of itself, and our flesh does not necessitate our choices. We are free to live after it or to deny it. That's Matthew 16.24, Romans 8.13, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. Jesus Christ made a distinction between moral perfection and physical perfection when he said, and the third day I shall be perfected in Luke 13, 32. Jesus Christ was morally perfect or sinless his entire life because he knew no sin in 2 Corinthians 5.21. But he was not born or created physically perfect. He had the same flesh that we have. Jesus lived a sinless life without a glorified flesh, while he inhabited this fleshly body that we ourselves have. He was born with a physical body that is made like unto our physical body, that was subjected to suffering and death. It was subjected to being able to be tempted. It was subjected to having inclination to certain behaviors and conducts. He was resurrected on the third day, and when he was, 
he received a glorified body and therefore became physically perfect. The physical and the moral must always be properly distinguished or differentiated between because what is physical relates to the flesh and what is moral relates to the will. The former relates to the quality of our substance, while the latter relates to the quality of our heart or motive. Moral states cannot be inherited, but what is physical is hereditary. As Jesus taught, that which is born of flesh is flesh. Diseases and death are physical and has to do with our flesh. But sin is moral and has to do with our will. This is why diseases and death can be transmitted and propagated through semen or sperm. But sin cannot be transmitted or propagated through natural reproduction. Julian of Eklenum said, and I quote, Death passed to us by Adam, not sins. All sin descends not from nature, but from the will. And Alfred T. Overstreet said, Sin is not a substance. It has absolutely no material or physical properties. Sin is an act, and so it is impossible for it to be passed on physically. A child has no moral character at birth. Moral character cannot be inherited or transmitted for the same reason that moral character cannot be borrowed or lent out. You cannot inherit the moral character of another person any more than you can lend your moral character to somebody else. Moral character is not transferable. Moral character is not a thing that has any material existence. Moral character is not physical. It cannot get wet or be hung out to dry. Moral character is immaterial. It is moral, not physical. A person is either sinful or holy based upon their personal choice and individual intention of their heart, not based upon the quality of their composition or the state of their constitution. Therefore, moral character cannot be bought and sold or be transmitted, transferred, or inherited from one person to another. While we do inherit physical depravity or body of flesh that is subjected to death, we do not inherit moral depravity. Just read Ezekiel 18, verses 19 through 22 to see that. Moral depravity is our own fault. Moral depravity is a state of sinfulness, and sin is a personal choice of our will. Moral character 
is not hereditary through our nature, but is originated through our will. Righteous parents do not give birth to righteous children, and sinful parents do not give birth to sinful children. A righteous moral character or a sinful moral character requires personal choice. A man is the author of his own character. Moral character cannot be transmitted through natural generation or inherited by posterity. Babies are not born righteous, as the Bible says. He that does righteousness is righteous in 1 John 3, 7. Since babies have not yet done anything righteous, they consequently are not righteous. There is no passive righteousness or righteousness of being apart from act of choice. The same moral principle applies to sin in Romans 9.11. Babies are born neither righteous nor sinful, but are born morally innocent, which is the only way they can possibly be born. There can be no moral character apart from free choice. So to be born or created with a moral character is a natural impossibility. I hope that this study has given you a lot to think about. And whether you agree or disagree, if it causes you to study the Word of God in a deeper, more relevant way, then it was worth our time. Good day. And God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast. <laughs>